Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You know what comes next in the story, and so when Herod sends the wise men on their way, you know they shouldn't trust him. You can probably imagine the fake, slimy tone of voice when he said, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. You know he doesn't mean it, because you know that his next move is to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem, younger than two years old. He wouldn't have had to do that if the wise men hadn't been warned in a dream not to return to Herod. If they'd gone back and told Herod just where the child was, he would have gone to Bethlehem and just killed Jesus. No need to slaughter all those innocents. That's not really any consolation, is it? Herod was a murderous man. He was famous, in fact, for murdering his own sons to preserve his political power. There was a lot at stake politically for King Herod. This talk of the king of the Jews presented problems for him on several levels. It's important to know that Herod wasn't himself the king of the Jews. He wasn't afraid that Jesus would come and lay claim to his throne. Herod was the king of a region, the region of Judea and its surrounding area, by commission of the emperor Caesar. He got the job because he was an acquaintance of Caesar, but Herod wasn't a Jew by birth, and so there was no loyalty to him from the Jews. And the Jews weren't limited to just the region of Judea, just the region under Herod's rule. In fact, they were spread throughout the Roman Empire. So now, imagine if somebody born under Herod's rule claimed to be the king of the Jews. Somebody under his jurisdiction claimed to be the king of all those people scattered throughout the Roman Empire. It would be on Herod's head if that king of the Jews led an uprising, for instance. If all those Jews took to arms all at once and the Roman army had to suppress a rebellion throughout its land, Herod, having been able to do something about that, would suffer terribly. He'd been a world of hurt. It would have been, wouldn't have been impossible for the Roman Empire to suppress such a rebellion, to stop the Jews. They've done it before, but it would have been a massive inconvenience. And so Herod was troubled. All of Jerusalem was troubled with him. The birth of Jesus was a problem for Herod. Maybe you know something about problems. I bet if you took a minute, or maybe even less, you could probably come up with a list of the problems you're dealing with, even at this very moment. They could be really simple, inconsequential things on the list. The tire pressure warning light is on in your car. There's a two-inch layer of ice somewhere that needs a good thaw. Or you're fresh out of AAA batteries, which means that the kids' toys from Christmas don't work. These are all real problems in my life right now. Those are some pretty mundane problems, though. And really, I'm not much worse off if I just ignore them. They'll go away eventually. Or I can deal with them when it's convenient. They don't really even deserve to be called problems. They're just inconveniences. But there are other problems that you can't ignore. They demand your attention. They keep you up at night. And they throw you into a funk. And you feel like life can't go on until you've dealt with this or that problem. There's not enough money in the checking account. Your kid is failing school, 
or has gotten himself into some trouble. Business is slow, and your job is on the line. Your health isn't great, and you've noticed a new symptom. Those are problems that demand your attention. You can't ignore them. You wish you could. You were happy before you knew about them, but now that you know, you can't unknow it. And so you spend your spare thoughts wondering, worrying what you're going to do about it. The worst are often those problems about which you can do nothing at all. Those problems that are completely out of your hands. You can say to yourself, there's no sense in worrying about this because I can't do anything about it anyhow, but that doesn't really help, does it? It's still a problem. And you're troubled on account of it. Actually, the worst problems may not be those you can't do anything about, but those you could do something about if you were willing to change. So you learn that you've got high cholesterol and you have to change your diet. Or you realize that you've been overspending and so you have to cut back. Or you find out that you've hurt someone or sinned against them. And you have to apologize and do things differently. Those are problems that, once you know them, they call for change in your life. And most of us would prefer never to have to change, and certainly never to make the hard changes. How often do you suppose that somebody else is the problem, when in fact you yourself are the common thread in the problems you encounter? The birth of Jesus was a problem for King Herod. But ignoring Jesus wasn't an option. This wasn't an inconsequential inconvenience. His political life was fraught, and his success depended on making shrewd and strategic political choices. And if that meant there would be some collateral damage now and again, well, he wouldn't be the first, and he certainly wouldn't be the last ruler to have blood on his hands. When Herod killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem, he was doing away with the problem. If Jesus was going to create an issue for Herod, the easiest and surest path was just to get rid of Jesus. Or at least that's how it seemed in the short run. It always seems good in the short run to do the expedient, immoral thing. It gets rid of the problem. It takes the burden off your mind. It lets you rest at ease, at least for a moment. But that's the key. It's just for a moment. And you know this from your own experience. The best examples, I think, are lies. Lies that are our attempts to cover up our own guilt. The lie always seems good in the short run because it deals with whatever problem we're facing. It deals with it so easily, so handily. It's like wiping the slate clean. But it also only lasts for a moment. When the lie is exposed, you discover that the problem has grown. It's mutated. It's taken on monstrous proportions. The lie seems like it deals with the problem, but it actually feeds it and makes it worse. Herod may never have faced any civic penalty. He may never have been punished by the law for killing the baby boys in Bethlehem, but you can be sure that such cruelty darkened and hardened his heart. And whatever isn't exposed in the light of this world will be exposed on the last day. Now, Herod thought that Jesus was a problem politically. But the truth is that Jesus presents a much bigger problem. 
He wasn't just a man who might grow up to lead some people someday into rebellion against Rome. He was a ruler, but on a much, much bigger scale than Herod. Jesus is the Ancient of Days. That's what the prophet Micah calls him. The Ancient of Days, whose power and authority and might extend beyond the borders of Judea, beyond the Roman Empire, beyond the boundaries of this world. His people are not just Jews in Jerusalem or scattered throughout the land, but even the Magi from the east, even you and me. Herod didn't realize what he was up against. Although he could have, he could have known. He had the words of the prophet. The chief priests and the scribes read to Herod from the prophet Micah, but all he paid attention to was where the child would be born. He ignored the rest. Micah goes on to say that Jesus would stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Herod thought that his rule and power over this patch of land in the Middle East might be at stake, but Jesus had not come to rule over land. He had come to rule over hearts. And that is why Jesus presents a much bigger problem than Herod realized, and not just for Herod, but for everyone. Jesus would grow up and gather a following of disciples, but he wouldn't be leading a rebellion. He wouldn't be staging a coup or taking up arms against the Roman Empire. He would be preaching. And here's what he would say. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus presents the very worst kind of problem because he calls for you to change. And he's not talking about bad, unhealthy habits that lead to things like high cholesterol and overspending. He's talking about your soul, which has to change. Your heart, which covets and lusts and hates. Herod was worried about a political problem, but he should have been worried about this spiritual problem. He should have been worried that his heart could ever permit him to carry out such atrocities, that his heart was so darkened and hardened as to incite him to do such terrible things. He should have been troubled when he realized that he was completely powerless to do anything about it, to solve the problem of his guilt. Jesus presents the same problem for you and me, because in the first place, he uncovers our hearts. He shows us what's in them. And once you know it, you can't unknow it. You can try to ignore it. You can plug up your ears at the sound of his voice. You can put Jesus out of your life. You can darken and harden your own heart and turn yourself into a Herod, but it doesn't change the fact. The problem remains. And what you cover up now will one day be exposed, and that is the reason for anyone to be greatly troubled, even more troubled than Herod was. But there are other characters in this story, characters who weren't troubled by Jesus. There is such a stark contrast between Herod and the Magi. Now, our translation calls them wise men, but that's a bit of a misnomer. It doesn't seem like they were scientists or philosophers or anybody particularly wise. Magi is a better word because you can hear in it the connection to magic. These men were astrologers, the kind of folks who spent their time trying to tell their fortunes by the motions of the stars and the planets. They didn't just breeze by the horoscope in the paper, but they read it and actually believed it. And that makes them most unlikely characters to come and worship the Messiah. They were not Jews, 
and they were not faithful. They believed all kinds of strange things, and in their unbelief, their hearts would have been dark and hardened. And yet, they saw this star, and somehow God revealed to them that a king had been born, the king of the Jews. And when they saw the star, they followed it. They didn't know where they were going or what they would find until they came to Jerusalem, and God's word was opened to them, and they discovered just what God had revealed to them, a ruler, a shepherd, who would make his people dwell secure and in peace. This could have been a problem for the Magi. Imagine how much their lives would have to change. Who knows what pagan practices and false beliefs they'd have to give up. Who knows what their families would feel or whether their friends would ridicule them. This could have been the worst kind of problem for the Magi. Maybe they'd be better off just turning around and going home or joining in with Herod and helping him to deal with this problem. But instead, what do they do? They bring their gifts. Gifts that you'd bring to a king in a palace. And they fell down and they worshipped him. That's only possible. You can only worship Jesus if you believe that he has come not just exposing the darkness of your heart, but also promising to lighten it as well. You can only worship Jesus if you believe that the problem he reveals within you is your greatest and most troubling problem by far, and that is precisely the problem he has come to solve. You can only fall down and worship Jesus if you believe that in his life, death, and resurrection, he wipes your slate clean. Not with a lie, not with a cover-up, not at the cost of your life or the life of anyone else, but with his own life with the washing of his own blood. On the last day when all is brought to light, you will be seen for who you are, a child of God and an heir of the promises of God. Jesus didn't come to make our lives convenient or comfortable. He didn't come to solve our political problems or to save us from ever having sleepless nights. But he did come to give us new hearts. He came to change us to bring about the very change that is demanded by the worst problem we face, the problem of sin and death. That change happens by faith. Jesus is not like any other king, like Herod least of all. He's a king who is merciful and gracious, and he invites you simply to trust in him, to repent and believe the gospel, to believe that he is your shepherd, who has come to make his people dwell secure and in peace, to believe his promise of life in his kingdom, a life free from any of the problems that you suffer now, big and small, free from the cares and worries of this life. That life was promised to you in his kingdom by your good shepherd. He is a king who deserves all praise and worship. The Magi honored him with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It was all that they knew to bring to a king. You get to honor him with your thanksgiving. You get to honor him by bowing down and worshiping and receiving again with gratitude his promises, his forgiveness and salvation. You get to offer him as a sacrifice of thanksgiving your lives, now lived according to the new hearts that you've been given, according to the love of God and love for your neighbor. Thanks be to God that he has sent you his son, And to him be all glory, honor, and worship, now and forever.
And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.